Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. When the Apostle Paul set out on his journey to spread the gospel message wherever God might send him, he probably didn't expect to travel all the way to Greece, but God had other plans. So the Lord interrupted Paul's plans and sent him into Macedonia, or Greece as we would call it. And you can listen to the verse-by-verse message on Acts chapter 16 on the website where I go into more detail on what happened when Paul visited Philippi. It's a really interesting story. And to summarize it, Paul is in Macedonia where God had sent him, not knowing a whole lot about God's plan as he entered Philippi. And as he entered Philippi, he meets a wealthy lady named Lydia who was worshiping by a river in the city, indicating that they had no synagogue in that city. If they didn't have a synagogue in a city, then they would go down to a river nearby or a body of water somewhere to worship. And Philippi, being an important Roman city, apparently had a small Jewish population. And there, Paul encounters a demon-possessed slave woman, and he exercised the demon out of her. And their owners flip out and have Paul arrested, and then the magistrates have him beaten and thrown into prison, despite the fact that he was a Roman citizen and had rights that would prevent them from doing that. They considered Paul a non-Roman, probably because the way he dressed and the way he acted and recognized him as a Jew. But Paul was a Roman citizen. So Paul's now in jail. He didn't throw up the citizen card. He just takes it. And he leads the man in charge of the jail to Jesus, as well as his whole family, and they're baptized. And then the next day, the magistrates who had ordered Paul beaten find out that Paul is actually a Roman citizen, which put their lives in jeopardy because they violated his rights. And their pucker factor skyrockets, so they kindly escort Paul out of the city. So Paul did not compromise his witness in Philippi. Rather, he demonstrates what a believer should do in a time of trial. And this made a huge impact in this city. So Lydia, the former demon-possessed slave girl, the jailer, and his family, plus all the magistrates, had all witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit through this man named Paul. And Paul did not get a whole lot of time to minister in the city because he was escorted out by the very nervous magistrates who were probably praying to every god they could think of to spare their lives after they screwed up so bad. But Paul, after he left the city, he didn't forget about them. And this is a letter that he wrote to them. And this letter stands apart from other letters that Paul wrote because he really has nothing bad to say about them. Rather, he speaks highly of this church that sprouted up after he only spent a few days there. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So Paul is writing on his own behalf and also that of Timothy, and Timothy was Paul's close companion and was a very influential pastor in the early church. And he's declaring both of them to be servants of Christ or doulos or a slave to Christ. He greets all the saints in the city along with the overseers and deacons, and so it's evident that this ministry there produced a church from ground zero when Paul was there, and now it's big enough where they have overseers or bishops. They were those that were in a position of leadership overseeing the church. And then they had deacons who were basically just servants who served the people in the church. 
if somebody's bragging about being a deacon, and I was a deacon, all that really means in the scriptures is that you do the work of the ministry in that fellowship. You're a grunt. That's it. You're not some special high and mighty person. Just because you get the title deacon doesn't mean anything other than you are serving. Some people let titles go to their head, and that's not wise. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses this model of introduction in many of his letters. He says grace and peace. When a person is transformed from a natural-minded person into a new creation in Christ, where the mind is now influenced by the Holy Spirit, which they have received, they will understand God's grace. When you understand God's grace and how he gives such good things to those who don't deserve it, that just naturally brings in his peace. So if you're not a person who has experienced the peace of God, do you really get the grace of God? Do you understand what he's done for you? Verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. So Paul is reflecting on his time in that city and all the drama that happened there, but also all the victories that occurred with the demon-possessed slave girl and the family of the jailer and who knows what else. And Lydia and her group of women down by the river, you know God was doing good things there. And not to mention the magistrates as they walked him out of town. Some of them may have also been part of this church now, because in Paul, what they would have seen is something very peculiar. He was not going to seek restitution. He was not going to seek vengeance when he could have very easily. But what Paul did, walking out with those magistrates, he had the upper hand. He had what he needed to turn them in and to really make a mess of their lives, but instead he showed them mercy. And he likely explained the mercy and grace of Christ. That's why he was there and explained the vision, why he came to Macedonia. So it's very likely that some of those magistrates were a part of that church. We don't know, but that's the way God works. They would have seen something very interesting in Paul, and the Holy Spirit would have nailed him. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. When Paul met Lydia along with the other women by the river, there was an immediate response to the gospel. So much so that Lydia even opened her home to Paul and his traveling companions. Like, hey, come stay with me. I just don't need to go look for someplace else to stay. We want to hear more. And so they did. Verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now in the scriptures, there are many key verses that we encourage believers to memorize, and this is one of them, reminding others that God has started something in them, and he's going to continue that work until he brings them home. And this is a good way of encouraging others when they're feeling disillusioned with God or themselves or whatever has them down. God is going to finish his work in us. So no matter where we are in our journey in this life, God is still working behind the scenes, and he's going to do so until the time we are home with him. And that's encouraging. God hasn't forgotten about us. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So these believers at the time of Paul's visit, it would have been Lydia and the women that were with her and the demon-possessed slave girl who now was experiencing a brand new life free from demonic oppression, and the jailer and his family who received Christ and were baptized. And also, at the time that Paul's writing this letter, it appears that he is imprisoned again for the gospel. So at this point, there's a church in Philippi. And they were likely keeping tabs on Paul, and they found out he was in prison. So they're continuing to lift him up and pray for him and do what they can to bless him. Paul is thankful for that, and he knows what they're doing. He knows the Holy Spirit's moving in them to pray and intercede for him. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And that phrase, God is my witness, is used so recklessly in our times. But as for Paul, he was a true witness, or as the original language says, martis, where we get our English word martyr from. Paul was a martyr. He would go on to be executed for his faith. And here he says that God is my witness. God's the one watching over me. God is the one that's taking care of me. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As Jesus often emphasized our responsibility to love God and to love others as a witness for his power, so too Paul encourages the believers to abound in love, grow more and more in love, and add to that love, knowledge, and all discernment. So biblical love, or agape, that's the word for love, it's not so much rooted in emotions, rather it is the power of God. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. The power and presence of God in us naturally produces agape, or biblical love. And this is how people are to recognize him. And Jesus said in John 13.35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have agape for one another, or if you have love for one another, unconditional sacrificial love. That's the sign of a believer. When you see believers behaving, especially among other believers, that love should be evident. But what happens to our witness when we don't have love for one another? They don't see Jesus in us. And that's a problem because he gave it all up for us. So we should at least agree to love one another, even if we don't want to. We remember it's that agape love that compels us to love one another. It's powerful. It's the power of God in us. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's agape. And this is how we will be pure and blameless when we are united with Jesus forever. We don't want to screw that up. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One thing about the gospel that I believe many people miss is that all the godly attributes declared to be imparted to the believer as they surrender their lives to Jesus is not our godliness. I can't create godliness in my life. My best would be far short of the godliness that comes through Jesus when I'm walking in faith and obeying him. It is pointless to try to be righteous in God's eyes when we're in our own strength or our own flesh. As Paul tells the Romans, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the righteousness that we have in us, the true righteousness that God sees, that comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through my efforts. It doesn't come through my works. It doesn't come through my being nice to people. Again, it's the power of God through me creating something in me that's from God. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul is imprisoned when he writes this letter to the Philippians, and they probably really grew fond of Paul after he was ejected from their city and ministered to other cities in this area. And there was likely communication from Paul encouraging Lydia and the jailer flowing back and forth while Paul was in Macedonia. So he was in several cities that were within a close journey from Philippi. So they could have mailed stuff. They could have had couriers. They could have had all that stuff. It's totally feasible. So it's unlikely that they just forgot about Paul and built their own church based on what they learned from his short visit. It's evident here that he is consoling those who were really bummed that Paul was again in jail for preaching Jesus. So Paul tells them, hey, don't worry about it, because this is good for advancing the gospel. Verse 13 so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the jailer could totally relate to this. Those in direct contact with Paul currently as he was imprisoned, they were hearing about Jesus. Paul wasn't shy about sharing, and he had a lot of people come to Christ as he was in jail. 
Now, back in Genesis, Joseph, one of 12 sons, his brothers sold him as a slave to get rid of him. And it was actually Joseph in time that saved his entire family when a famine struck the land, including those that sold him into slavery. And their brothers at that time were pretty frightened of him because God had brought him to a high government position. And if he wanted to, Joseph could have punished his brothers for the actions against him. He could have killed him easy. But he says an interesting thing in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God was at work the entire time, working his plan so that his will would be accomplished, and that involved an innocent man paying a heavy price for something he didn't do, so that in time, the greater good would come about. And we should think about this the next time we're in a tough spot where we're getting hammered by somebody for something that we didn't do, or something that we did that they're blown out of proportion. And this is where Romans 8.28 comes in. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've heard that verse distorted, and it says that God works out all things for good. Okay, and yes, technically that's true. But in this verse, there's no promise to those who don't love God. These are the children of God. These are people who love God. Joseph loved God. I think it's very evident in his life. And there's nothing negative said about Joseph in the scriptures. And indeed, he loved God, and all things were working together for good. He didn't understand why he was sold into slavery and later imprisoned. But he was one who was called according to the purposes of God. And his tough situation turned out to be a blessing for everybody. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So another factor in Paul being thrown into jail and keeping a smile on his face is that others were seeing this, and they became emboldened to push the gospel forward without being afraid. And they might have said that Paul was a good example. Look at him. Look how he's going through that, man. You know, and just got inspired by watching all this stuff happen to Paul. And Paul's like, hey, I'm a soldier for Christ. I am still in the game. This is part of it. And they would look at him and go, yeah. And so now they're out boldly proclaiming the word without fear, and they're doing the work of the ministry. So what would our lives look like if we were not afraid to speak the gospel? And sadly, we can preach the gospel. And probably the worst thing that's going to happen is someone's going to come up and tell us to shut up. Not a lot to be afraid of, yet most believers are terrified to share their faith spontaneously when an opportunity arises. I don't get it. The Holy Spirit's prompting you, then do it. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So the latter, or the ones that preach Christ from goodwill, understand that Paul is imprisoned for the same goodwill, not being punished by God for preaching out of envy or rivalry. That's one thing new believers need to understand as they are exploring their new faith and discovering Jesus and his plans for their lives. There are many preachers that preach in such a way as to pit Christians against each other, attacking other churches' beliefs that are really not contradicting Scripture. Rather, their conviction is that our interpretation is this. It's not necessarily bad, it's just the way they see things. There is room for that. But many of these preachers, they attack the quote-unquote opposition. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who see the Scriptures a little different than they do. You know, these people simply have a conviction that, look, this is what we believe. And the rivalry among some of these people, to me, is very sad. And it just bulldozes love into the ground. I just heard a guy on the radio not too long ago, and I turned him off. 
he was talking about how do you deal with these type of people, you know, talking about other brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different flavor of Christianity as they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. We got enough enemies out there in the spirit realm that are trashing people, and yet what are we doing? We're not fighting them. We're not declaring the blood of Jesus over our own homes, over our own minds, over our churches. Instead, we're bringing in other brothers and sisters into our sights, and we're firing away. Man, that's not right. Verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So they're trashing Paul. And I don't know what Paul was experiencing while he was in prison, but I can imagine that as believers begin to teach out of selfish ambition, saying things of their own opinion, they're looking at Paul and they're saying, he's in prison. This is a divine judgment. It shows you he's wrong, you know, that kind of garbage that people love to do. You know, look at him. This is obviously a sign. It's like the Old Testament when you see a lot of these women who were barren and they were considered cursed because they couldn't have children, thinking that, what did you do? And in the New Testament also, the man that was born blind in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples asked him, you know, who sinned that this guy was blind, his mother or his father? You know, why is this guy under divine judgment? Jesus is like, he's not. Jesus then heals the guy and glorifies God. And it's like, this is the reason. There was a plan for him being blind all these years. And it wasn't because his parents sinned. And so when people look at someone else who's going through a hard time, and they're like, well, obviously, this is a judgment from God. You know, they're being stupid. It is not a judgment from God. You don't know that. And Paul being in prison was not a judgment from God. Paul being in prison was God's plan. And if you go back to Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, the Lord told Ananias, I'm going to show this man how much he's going to suffer for my name. And Paul suffered a lot, but every time he's in jail, guess what? People get saved. People hear the gospel. And a lot of people who are in jail and desperate are very open to it, while people that live a good, comfortable life are like, eh, whatever. That's your coffee shop Christianity that fills most churches today. We don't need Jesus. We just like him, and we just want that get-out-of-hell-free card. But Paul's like, no, I'm going to go where the ground is fertile. And in all of these places, when he's being incarcerated, when he's being attacked, when he's doing all this stuff, people are watching him and they're seeing the hand of God move through his life. And he knew that was part of his ministry, was to suffer. What about us? When we suffer, what do we do? We glorify God in our sufferings? Do we count it all joy, like James said, when we enter into various trials, or do we whine and complain and snivel and say, God, why are you doing this? And maybe there is a reason why God is doing it. Maybe we're in sin because we're not obeying the word. But just because someone is going through something bad does not mean that God's cursing them or God's punishing them. And that's what some of these guys evidently were teaching about Paul. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So whatever it is, as long as Christ is being proclaimed and being proclaimed accurately, you know, who cares? If I have to suffer, I'll suffer. So Christ is proclaimed. People can come to know Jesus. And Paul considered that a win. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul had been locked up enough to know that he would be delivered. And if he was to be executed, which he ultimately will, then the final and most glorious deliverance will follow. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So whatever happens, as long as Jesus is glorified, I'm good. And it's time to take personal inventory of our faith. Can I say this honestly, that whatever happens, as long as Jesus is glorified, I'm good? So if something happens tomorrow that's really 
bad, can I say, hey, you know what? As long as Jesus is glorified in this, I'm good. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is another memorization verse. We need not obsess about our current events in the world and in our lives. Yes, we need to pay attention to things, and if we can contribute to a solution, we should. But our life is drawing closer to death every day. I am one day closer to death today than I was yesterday. And when I die, I actually gain something far greater than this life can offer. And this life fades away along with all its junk. So not only do I go to a better place, I don't have to worry about presidential elections. I don't have to worry about the environment. I don't have to worry about all this stuff that we obsess over. All that's going to be gone, and I'm going to be in glory. And Paul knew this. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So now in this verse, Paul is referring to the flesh, speaking of his just physical body. He's not talking about the flesh versus the spirit. He says, look, I'm in the flesh. I'm in the physical body compared to my eternal body. And he is on earth inhabiting a mortal body. So every day I'm alive, I get to serve Jesus in whatever way he sets before me. If I die, good for me. If I live, good for the church, good for those that I can bless. I can still proclaim Jesus, and that's a win as well. That's what Paul's saying. He knows as long as he is here, there's good things that God's doing through him. So he's like, bring it on. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. So Paul was torn between living and dying, knowing that dying provides the better life for him, but living provides him further opportunity to do the good that Jesus is doing through him. Now, Paul tells a story in 2 Corinthians 12, too, where it says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And this story is about a man, most likely Paul himself, who died, who went into what is referred to as the third heaven. The first heaven back in these times was considered our atmosphere, where the birds fly. The second heaven was outer space, where the stars are. The third heaven is what we think of heaven, where the throne room of God is. So Paul goes on to describe the third heaven. In verse 4, he says, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. These things were so amazing that Paul wouldn't dare to repeat them. So he had knowledge of the third heaven. Now, when he was visiting the city of Lystra in Acts chapter 14, he ruffled the feathers of the Jews who took him out and stoned him, thinking he was dead. But Paul woke up and went back into the city. And some believe that Paul was actually killed here. And he went into the third heaven. But because God wasn't done with him yet, Paul was resurrected and continued his ministry. And that could be what happened. And if so, Paul had a literal entrance into the third heaven. And if it was a vision from God, like John's vision in the book of Revelation, where it's very real, but it wasn't actually death that allowed John to enter into the presence of God. It was a vision. If that was the case for Paul, Paul still had the experience and seen things in heaven. So either way, Paul understood that when he died, there's something on the other side that's really good, and that excited him. And when we draw close to Jesus through faith and obeying him and his word, we can have the same heavenly comprehension that brings about that peace that passes all understanding. We may not have a vision into heaven, but we comprehend, yes, there is a life after this one. So Paul knew that dying was basically graduating from this life and being done with the stupidity of the world appealed to him. But he knew, hey, there's still work for me to do. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he understood that while he was being used by God to bring people to an understanding of Jesus, that was very important because their eternal destination depended on their decision to follow Jesus. So he gets it. 
He knows that, hey, I'm going to be there one day. I'm going to be in heaven standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And if it's not my time to go yet, if I got to endure more of this suffering, then it's just going to make that day more sweet the more rewards I get because the more people are going to hear about Jesus. And that was his mindset. He wasn't fixed on his comfort. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul understands that, you know what, my work's probably not done here yet. This isn't the end. And he's expecting to see the Philippians again, or at least certain people from Philippi. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul, in a nice way, says, hey, keep on plugging away and don't screw up your witness. Stand on the rock in unity. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. So those opponents, who were many, because if we recall, Philippi was a Roman city. Not only that, it was a Roman colony, which meant you don't mess with Rome, its laws, its customs, or gods, unless you want to pay with your life. So there's going to be opposition there in Philippi. Not a lot of Jews there, not even a synagogue there, but now there's these people running around talking about this Jesus who died and is alive again and changed their lives. And the Romans were very religious people. They believed in lots of gods. And now all of a sudden they got this weird God. They're going to experience a lot of opposition, not to mention the fact the spiritual influence behind all of those gods. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was talking about these pagan gods. And he's like, these pagan gods got demons behind them. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. So the demonic influence in the Roman colonies, where power is the god, basically, and this group of gods that you basically had a god for everything, there's a demonic influence behind that. So you can count on opposition. And I can't help but think of those magistrates who had Paul beaten, then tried to desperately sweep it under the rug. Then they find out that, you know, Paul knows a lot of people in this city, and he's considered a holy man who likes to write letters. They had to be on edge thinking, hey, man, this guy writes letters. What if he writes a letter to our governor? They had to be nervous, and I wouldn't blame them. So the opposition is going to be there. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Hey, everyone, good news. The joy that comes from suffering for Jesus Yeah, you're going to have that joy too, just like me, just like I'm still enjoying. We're all in this together, and that's the way it should be. We as children of God should be united in Jesus, having his Holy Spirit in us and proclaiming to the world the good news of Jesus. Forget about the non-essential doctrines that don't matter. Forget about the people that dress differently. Forget about the people who worship differently. All that does is build walls and keep us from fellowshipping with other believers in Christ. And it makes us forget that they are children of God, too, just like us. Thank you.